guys. Thanks for leading us, team. It is good to be together. Uh, man, it, it does our hearts good when we see you guys walking through the doors and coming here to meet, to gather, to, to love God back through our songs and then to lean into the truth of his word. And uh, last weekend, we began a brand new series here at the chapel that we've entitled The Good Life, Living by the Beatitudes. And uh, last week, we looked at what Jesus had to say in that first beatitude that kind of sets the stage for all the rest, where Jesus said, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And last week, Eric challenged us uh, to think about how the, the, really the first step towards the good life is realizing that we're poor. Not necessarily in a financial way, but in a spiritual way. That we have a, a spiritual deficit in our life. That we're spiritually bankrupt before God with nothing to offer. And so we are desperate for Him to do something on our behalf. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. And that's closely linked to the next beatitude that Jesus shares that we want to look at together this weekend. And here's what Jesus had to say next. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Jesus said, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who mourn. Now that seems like a bit of an oxymoron, right? Two things that don't go together, being blessed and mourning, being sad. So what, what is this really talking about? Is Jesus saying that uh, we're blessed when we're sad, when we're crying, that, that when we see a friend or a family member that is hurting deeply, that we just slap him on the back and say, oh, you're, you're just so blessed? Obviously, that's not the kind of mourning that Jesus is talking about here. And it, like I said before, it's so closely tied to that first beatitude where Jesus said, blessed are the poor in the spirit, those that realize they're bankrupt without God. In fact, not just bankrupt, but that because of our, our own sin and shortcomings before God, that we have an incredible deficit. We owe an incredible debt to God that we could never repay. And when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, it's a mourning over the ways that we have fallen short. A mourning, a sorrow, a grief over the ways that we have gone against God and His will, the things that damage us and damage our relationships and damage our relationship with God ultimately. But Jesus is saying that there's a blessing in being broken over our sin. In the letter to the Corinthian church, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, For the kind of sorrow that God wants us to experience. Now just stop right there for a minute because that doesn't seem what we would typically read, right? Or at least what we typically think. I mean, some of us here would say, well, I thought God wanted us to be happy. I mean, is God really wanting us to be sad? And yet that verse says there's a kind of sorrow or grief or mourning that God actually wants us to experience. Now, here's why. As we read on in the verse, he says he wants us to experience this kind of sorrow, because it leads us away from sin and results in salvation. 
He's saying that this sorrow, this grief, this mourning that God wants us to experience actually has the potential to change the direction of our life. That it leads us, as he said, away from sin, away from the things that harm us, harm our relationships, destroy our relationship with God, eat at our soul. I think about what David the psalmist said when he said, when I I didn't confess my sin, my, my body was wasting away. Some of us are wasting away and we don't even know it because we, we haven't truly mourned over the things that broke, have broken God's heart. So this change of direction happens when we have this kind of godly sorrow. And, and he goes on in the verse to say, there's no regret for that kind of sorrow. It's like he's saying, there's no being sorry if you're sorry in this way. <laughs> that there's a good kind of sorrow. But he, he, he says, in contrast to that, there's also a worldly sorrow. It's a, it's a fake sorrow. It's a fake grief, a fake mourning. It's a, oh, I got caught, and so now I'm in trouble, so I better own up. This, he says, this worldly sorrow, it lacks repentance. It, it lacks, the word repent literally means just to change directions. Remember we said before, the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away. It changes the direction of our life, but worldly sorrow lacks that change, that new direction. And as a result, it ends in spiritual death, eternal separation from God. I, I, I think the, the kind of mourning and grieving that Paul is talking about here, that Jesus was talking about when he said God blesses those who, are, who mourn, I think we see it being lived out in the life of an Old Testament prophet named Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, here's what it says. Isaiah's writing, it says, And it was in the year that King Uzziah died. Now that's, he, that's a marker in history, real history. And it was a time of great outward prosperity, but inward corruption. And he says it was in this time that King Uzziah died. And he says, And I saw the Lord. Isaiah has this incredible vision of God. And as we look at the passage, we see what he saw. It says he was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. And attending him were mighty seraphim. It's the only place that 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 word turns up in the Old Testament. It's a title for a kind of angelic being. And the word seraphim literally means uh, burning ones or fiery ones, which will become significant, we'll see, in just a few moments. So there's these seraphim, these angelic beings attending to God that Isaiah sees, and it says each of them had six wings. And with two wings, they covered their faces. It was like they couldn't even look upon the countenance of God. And it says with two wings, they covered their feet, and with two wings... They were flying all around. And it says they were calling out to each other. It's where we get the, the lyrics to that beautiful classic hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. They were calling out to each other, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So these angelic beings, they're declaring the character of God. And Isaiah is getting this 
grand vision of God. And it says that their voices shook the temple to its foundations and the entire building was filled with smoke. What an overwhelming, overcoming sight. And look at how Isaiah responds next. He says, it's all over. I am doomed. See, Isaiah gets this vision of how holy God is. And when we see God for who he is, we begin to see ourselves for who we are. And he says, it's all over. I'm doomed. Some versions of the Bible here says, uh, Isaiah said, woe is me, I am ruined. Or literally it means, I'm falling to pieces. He thinks it's lights out. I'm dead meat. I have no place to be here before a holy God like this. And then he admits, look at what he says. He says, I am a sinful man. He says, I have filthy lips and I live among a people with filthy lips. Isaiah gets in the presence of God and he sees who he is and now he's grieving, he's mourning over who he has become and not just his own sin, his own fault, his own shortcoming, but he notices the the sin of the nation, of his people. And he says, yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. What a sight. A.W. Pink says that the closer the Christian lives to God, the more he will mourn over all that dishonors him. This is the common experience of God's true people. And sometimes we, we are just kind of ignoring or, 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 or misplacing or explaining away our own sin because we aren't close enough to God. We're not seeing it for what it is. I think about David who when he sinned with Bathsheba, he said, against you and you only have I sinned, Lord, and done what is wrong in your sight. He owned it. He admitted it. He grieved it. He mourned it. This is why Jesus says, blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. So how does God comfort us? You see, I I think that when we finally come to the end of ourselves and can admit and confess and mourn, grieve over our wrongdoing, it's an opportunity then for God to bring his comfort into our life. D.A. Carson says that there's no comfort or joy that can compare with what God gives those who mourn. I was thinking about it years and years ago. Lainey, our oldest, she was probably only three or four years old, and it was bedtime. And uh, as kids often do, they, well, they fight the bedtime, don't they? And I was really trying to be patient, and, you know, I kept reminding her, coaxing her. She was, she was sitting on her bed, and uh, she was watching a show, and, I, you know, I'd say, okay, well, five more minutes, and then, okay, well, at the next commercial, and, you know, I kept extending, giving more and more grace, and, but, but more and more, she was just not having it. <laughs> she didn't want to go to bed. And so 
as she persisted, I persisted, and, you know, finally Lisa's chiming in, like, Lainey, no, it's time to go to bed. We got it. And she said, I can't, Dad, my legs don't work. She's like, I can't, I can't go to bed. I can't get up off the bed. My legs don't work. Now, for a split second, I was like, well, did something happen? Is there something really wrong? And yet, deep down, I knew what was going on. She was just trying to avoid the bedtime. But I realized that, I mean, there was no way that I could argue that her legs didn't work. So finally, I just acquiesced, and I said, okay, Lainey, you know what? I'm not going to argue with you anymore. If you're telling me the truth and your legs really don't work, I, I believe you. I believe you, okay? You're being honest with me right now, so I believe you, and, but you're still going to have to go to bed, so I guess I'll have to carry you into bed. And so I scooped her up and carried her, took her into bed, tucked her in. About 10 minutes later, there's a knock on our door. And Lainey opens the door, and she says, Dad... And she just starts crying. She said, my legs do work. <laughs> she said, my legs do work. I just didn't want to go to bed, and I lied to you. And she just, I mean, the tears just started flowing, and she felt such remorse. And oh, in that moment, I just, I just sweeped her up again, and I just pulled her close, and I said, Lainey, I love you. Thank you for being honest with me. You need to know how much I love you, how much I forgive you. you guys, this, is the, this is the comfort that God wants to bring to people. But that comfort is oftentimes short-circuited by our unwillingness to not just admit where we've been wrong, but to mourn over how we have wronged God. Until our hearts break for the things that break God's heart, we won't experience this kind of comfort and love and forgiveness and mercy and grace. James wrote about it this way. He said, come close to God and he will come close to you. But how does that happen? And James calls the people out and he calls me out and us out. He says, wash your hands, you sinners, Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. He says, let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. This is what Jesus was pointing to when he said, God blesses those who mourn. There's a kind of godly sorrow that he's calling us into. And James finishes with these words. He says, uh, let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. But it's for a greater purpose. And he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. He will scoop you up. He will love you. He will forgive you. In fact, he will honor you. When we confess, when we come clean, when we're broken, when we truly mourn, and have sorrow over our sin. This is what happens in Isaiah's story. Remember, Isaiah has just had this grand vision of God. He's overwhelmed. He says, woe is me. I'm undone. Uh, I, I'm, I have filthy lips. I'm a sinful man, and I live among a people of filthy lips. Look at what happens next in Isaiah's story. It says, then one of the seraphim, remember, one of the burning ones, the fiery ones, uh, flew to me, with a burning coal, 
he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. Now the altar was the place of sacrifice where animals were sacrificed and they were cut open and their blood poured out and it was a picture of covering, a covering over our own sins that something had to die in order for us to be forgiven. And it says that this messenger from God, because that's what angels are, comes to him with, an, with, a, with a burning uh, coal from that altar. And then it says, he touched my lips with it. Isn't it interesting that the very thing that Isaiah said was causing him to sin, his filthy lips, that this messenger from God would touch him in the very place that he admitted his wrongdoing. And Isaiah goes on, he says, he touched my lips with it, and then the angel, the messenger from God, said to Isaiah, see, this coal has touched your lips, and now your guilt is removed, and your sins are forgiven. I can imagine that Isaiah in that moment, his heart echoed the words of David the psalmist when he said, Oh, what joy for those whose sins are forgiven, whose record the Lord does not count against him. He comes face to face with a holy, holy, holy God. He realizes how unholy he is. He grieves, mourns over his sin, and God extends grace, forgiveness. And as he confesses, God brings his comfort to Isaiah. And what happens next is even more astounding, an infamous passage for those felt feeling called to the mission field. It says, Then Isaiah heard the Lord asking, Whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Here I am. Send me. And this became Isaiah's call to serve as a prophet of God who would speak on behalf of God to the people, speak with his filthy lips that had been seared with the coal and cleansed, and he'd experienced forgiveness and grace, and now God's comfort leads him to serving God in a whole new way. And that's the truth. Whenever God comforts us, it's not just for us. God doesn't comfort you, comfort me, just to make us comfortable. He comforts us so that he can send us out, so that we can be his representatives to a world that deeply, desperately needs forgiveness and needs hope and comfort. And that's what he did in Isaiah's life. But that would not have happened if Isaiah would have just brushed it off or tried to explain away his sin or ignored it. Instead, he mourns and owns it. Maybe I can explain it the way that G.K. Chesterton did. This was years and years ago, and there was a, an article in the paper that was a weekly thing, and it just asked people to respond to the question, what's wrong with this world? <laughs> That's a great question, isn't it? Man, as we look around the landscape of our culture and society right now, 
Don't you sometimes just wonder what is wrong? And it's easy. It's easy, isn't it, to think, yeah, what's wrong with this world? I know what's wrong. It's the politics, or it's this, or it's that, or it's, it's that person, or it's their fault, or there's all. Well, G.K. Chesterton, he replied in the letter, with a letter to the editor. And here's what he said. Dear sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am. I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. You see, until we stop pointing fingers and start owning up to our own part of the mess, until we, until we recognize where we too have fallen short, and not just admit it, but mourn over it, to be broken, then we'll never experience God's amazing comfort. And He can't call us into what's next for a life until we come to that place. That's why Jesus said, God blesses those who mourn, for then they will be comforted. So here's how we'd like to end our time together. We're going to celebrate communion. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come out now, and they're going to they're lead us in another song of worship. And as they do, I want us to consider two very important questions in light of what we've talked about today. And the first question is this. What's, what's the sin in my life that I've just grown to accept? Because we all do this. I do it. And if you're being honest with yourself, you do it too. It's that thing that, you know, we just haven't been able to get over. Or maybe, if we're honest, we just like it too much. And we might say we're sorry at times, but we really never intend on changing or giving, up, giving it up or going in the other direction. It's something that we've just, we know is wrong, and yet we've just learned to live with it. And we've kind of embraced it. We've just accepted it. And Jesus is calling us to mourn, to grieve over the things that we've just accepted. And secondly, to ask the question, when was the last time that my heart was truly broken over my own sin? Not just a, I got caught, oh, I better fess up. but broken because we realize how it breaks God's heart. How it might be destroying us inwardly. How it might be holding back the, a flourishing relationship with a spouse or with one of our kids. And so in a moment, our, our serving team, they're going to come by and they're going to hand out the communion elements. They're prepackaged. They're a little bit hard to deal with, but there's two, two little pull-off tabs. One is clear, and that'll get you to the wafer that represents Jesus' broken body. And then there's a second one that you pull off, and that'll get you to the juice. But as we contemplate these questions and as we worship together, I want to encourage us to just hold out one hand flat like this. 
I want us to think about what's, what's in that hand. What is that thing, that sin, that mistake, that attitude, that grudge, that, that sin? And as we hold that hand out, grieving, mourning, where we have fallen so short, then our communion serving team are going to come by and they're, you're just going to hold your hand flat and they're just going to place the communion elements in that very hand. That God might touch us in the very place that we're admitting our wrongdoing. And that in the midst of communion, we would receive Jesus' ultimate comfort. That Jesus didn't grow comfortable, but he went to the cross and he gave up his body and his blood so that we could have forgiveness and hope and wholeness and God's incredible comfort. A comfort that begins now and that goes into all of eternity. So I'm going to invite our servers to come.